Hello everyone, welcome back to Unschooling with PDA. My name's Rose, I'm your host, and this podcast is about everything related to PDA, parenting a pda homeschooling, unschooling, and everything in between. So I am very pleased to welcome our first guest, Amy Rutter. Amy is a proud mum to a six-year-old ADHD PDA boy, and she lives in Northamptonshire. She's also the founder of Your Parent Carer Cheerleading Squad, a community that supports parents of children with additional needs. It's a safe and encouraging space where they celebrate each other's achievements and cheer each other on. Amy is also a big advocate of self-care and loves connecting with other parents who understand the challenges of this wild journey we're on. When she's not working or taking care of her son, Amy loves getting stuck into a good crime documentary, attending clubber-sized classes and going to punk and indie gigs, although she admits it's rare that she can stay awake late enough to go to them. We had a really lovely chat with Amy. Uh, She shares a lot of information and her experiences on how they got to a diagnosis and how she put homeschooling arrangements in place for her son. So with no further ado, let's dive right into our conversation with Amy. Hi, Amy. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I'm really excited to talk to you. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited as well. So let's jump into the big question. How did you find out about PDA? Because I think that's one of the things that we all struggle with at first. It's very difficult to get a diagnosis for most of us. So I'd really love to hear your journey. So our journey is a very long one. But in terms of PDA, it's something that I heard about a few years ago. But I just didn't feel like it applied to my son, Rudy, at the time. He's six now. And it was much more recently, around Christmas time, that we thought, actually, I think this is Rudy. And I think it's because we also realised at the same point that he hit burnout. Mm -hmm. And through the research that I've been doing, I've read that many parents don't realise their child is PDA until the point where they hit burnout. Because prior to that, they've been masking and I think Rudy now has got to the point where he can't mask anymore we didn't know he was masking but he's at the point where he's just hit that threshold and everything is putting him into fight and flight so we don't have a diagnosis but from all the research I've done it's absolutely him I see that must have been really hard to to have that hit you out of nowhere Yeah, it kind of did. And we did have an OT even that mentioned it a couple of years ago. She said to me, oh, we did a training session on PDA. Have you heard of it? And I was like, yeah, I have heard of it before. And she said, oh, I was listening to it and thought, that sounds like Rudy. And I thought there are aspects of it that do because Rudy is very anxious and he always has been. He was at that point too. But when I was sort of looking at PDA being the demand avoidance, the need for autonomy and equality overriding the basic needs, I thought, well, no, that's not him. He is anxious, but it doesn't override everything else. So I just thought, no. And it's only now that we're like, yeah, absolutely. What was he like as a baby and then a toddler? So... As a baby, he was very clingy to me. He was always on me, slept on me for a very long time. So I would sit up in the bed and he would literally be lying on my chest and we were like that for a long, long time. 
it took a long time for me to transition him into his own cot in his own room. So he's, he's always had that clinginess, wanting to be on me, wanting to be with me. He was also very colicky, which I've heard oh. is quite common for babies with PDA. And I suppose I need to sort of go back to pre-COVID. So when Rudy was two years old at that time, we didn't know that he actually had any differences in inverted commas because he had sensitivities around loud sounds. So I remember that he he didn't like the hoover. If we were in public bathrooms, he hated the hand dryers. If a motorbike would suddenly go past, it, you know, it would panic him. But I thought, that's just normal. That's what babies are like. And I remember if we were in somewhere that was new and quite busy, he'd put his face right in mine like and he would stick to me like that which I think was sort of a safety thing I suppose oh, those were the only kind of indications that there was anything different it was only in lockdown so in the UK that was end of March 2020 wasn't it yeah and it was only at that point that things started to kick off so it, it is a long story, but I, I do, I'll try and explain it very briefly because it does show how we've got to the diagnosis and EHCP and everything else that's followed. So in the very first lockdown, it was at the point where you were only allowed out once a day for exercise, for daily exercise somewhere local. So before this point, I'd been out and about with Rudy all the time. I took him to a baby music group. I took him swimming. I took him to stay and play. We were hardly ever at home. And then lockdown happened. So obviously we stopped being able to go to any of these things, to have any visitors. And being two years old, we couldn't explain why that was to him. It's just everything stopped. And there was one day when his dad took him out in the buggy for a walk and loads of loud traffic noise all happened at the same time. So there was a lorry, a motorbike, a tractor, a hedge trimmer, all at the same time. And he absolutely panicked was hysterically upset thrashing around trying to get out of his buggy so Rob brought him straight home a couple of days later the same thing happened when he was out with me and he was beside himself terrified and from that point onwards he would not step outside again to the point where he wouldn't let us open the windows and we thought I feel awful about this now, but I didn't know any better. I thought if I pick him up, kicking and screaming, and walk him to the local park, by the time we get there, he'll have a fun time. I feel awful mm. saying this. But we just thought that might help him and we'll have fun when he's there. And we did it for a few days and it got worse and worse and worse to the point where if I came near him in the house, he was running away from me, scared of me, presumably because he thought I was going to pick him up and try and take him outside. So we thought, this is not working. We need to stop and we need to get some help with this. I phoned our GP and was told, it's normal. He'll grow out of it. Thanks very much, GP. <laughs> Fast forward to about a year later of being in this position. And I thought, this isn't normal. I'm going to bypass the GP and speak to somebody else. And I spoke to a health visitor and she mentioned sensory processing. And that was the first time that vocabulary was introduced to us, that this concept was introduced to us. And it went from there. I self-referred us to a department in our local authority called Send Support Service. 
and we were given a support worker that I suppose is kind of similar to a Senko if your child's in school. And she started trying to help us a little bit with the sound sensitivity. And this now was about September 21. By this point, we'd eventually got Rudy out into the garden without distress. It took months and months and months, but we still couldn't go outside anywhere else. And this now was a point where it was a year before Reedy was due to start school. So we needed to think about schools. And at this point, I thought, there's no way we'll be in this position still in a year's time. We'll definitely be going outside. We'll just have to figure out what kind of school he needs and what kind of school can support him with these noise sensitivities. Because we still didn't know a huge amount about sensory processing and didn't have that connection with autism. And the Senko at that point put um, together the request for assessment for an EHCP. Mm-hmm. So this is the point where an educational psychologist came to the ha- house to do an assessment. We didn't have an occupational therapist, crazily, considering that was so vital. They didn't do that for us. And we didn't know that that was even a thing that we should have at the time. They are very, very picky about who they refer to OT, I find. They are. Yeah, they I've do gatekeep that. the OT services a fair bit from what yeah. I know. Yeah, I've heard that from lots of other parents as well. But so we had the EP, we had speech and language therapist, and we started the diagnostic pathway at the same time. And we actually got a diagnosis really quickly. But I think it's because we were going through the EHCP process at the same time. So the day that the EP came out to do an assessment for the EHCP, she also wrote another report as part of the diagnostic process for us. So we were really lucky that that was all happening at the same time, because it was only in a six months probably that we got the diagnosis from the paediatrician because of that report that the EP had done for us. So at the point that we got the diagnosis we knew he was autistic, we understood enough about it by that point through the different assessments and what everybody had said and then our own research we thought we know he's autistic, we understand sensory processing difficulties more now so it wasn't a surprise when we got the diagnosis that that took us to March 2022 and it's only now February 2024 so it was sort of Christmas time that PDA then started to become relevant for us. That must have been really difficult because if the strategies that they recommend for autism were the ones that you were trying then it would have been almost exactly the opposite of what a PDA needs isn't it? It How did your mental health cope with the uncertainties and then going through this process and and not really knowing how to support your son were you able to keep yourself afloat in some way in all honesty I'd say that we felt like we were drowning the whole time and we're still kind of in that same position we feel like we're drowning really because a lot of the support as you said that we were getting wasn't quite right we kind of realized through speech and language that A lot of the, you know, things like PECs, communication boards, he didn't like. And I understand why that is now. We did make an adapted visual schedule that worked for him. So there were some things that were helping, but we've just not had enough support there ourselves at all. So we're at a point now where it's just me, my partner, Rob, who's Rudy's dad and Rudy in our house. And I work part-time hours. And Rob was working part time, but he's an autistic burnout himself now because through Rudy's diagnosis, he also realised he was autistic, which I also (laughs) understand is very common, isn't it? Yes. 
And we have had support over the years, but we've lost it all now with Rudy being in burnout. I feel like we're trudging along and we're getting along as best that we can, but Rudy will not let anybody in the house now. So the support that we did have, and I can talk about this as well, because we had, well, we still got, an, we've got an EOTIS package, an education other than a school package for him, which is all delivered at home because he's still unable to go outside. But because Rudy stopped letting anybody in the home, all of that support that we had has gone overnight. We did have a PA for him as well. And although she wasn't able to take him out and about, she was spending time with him, just playing, looking after him in the house. We've lost all of that too. I I have mornings, I, I work, that's my time, work slash rest. And Rudy and Rob looks after Rudy. And in the afternoon, we swap over and Rob rests and I look after Rudy. So I'm essentially working or looking after Rudy all of the time. And because Rudy's in burnout and PDA, he needs that constant attention and co-regulation. It's really difficult for me to go to the toilet. It's really difficult for me to go to the kitchen to get a drink or to make our food. We have no break. We have no support. So... I know how important self-care is, but when you've only got minutes to yourself in a day, it's so difficult. And we have good days when we're trying to be positive, but even now I have days where we're actually feeling really low and it feels almost like we're still in isolation, like in lockdown. And everybody else has come out of isolation and has moved on with their lives. And we're still at this point where we're paused, we're stuck. And nothing that anybody can do and all the support that we've been offered, we simply cannot access because we cannot have anybody in the house and we also can't leave the house. So it's really, really tricky because it feels like we're in Groundhog Day. Rudy needs us and part of this is an acceptance for us that this is how things look at the moment, but things will get better. But it's really difficult to continue working all the normal juggles and stresses of day-to-day life with all of this happening at the same time. I have so, so much sympathy for you because that was our life as well for a very long time. And what you said about it being like lockdown for you while everyone else has moved on, that must be so isolating, isn't it? And and that's why I also wanted to have this podcast because I think only other parents going through this can truly understand because even our families don't quite understand don't do they because they think it it just takes a little bit of a stronger approach a more hardline approach as parents to get them out of the house and that is not how it works no absolutely and so we have been you know recognizing that Rudy is PDA we have completely changed our approach to parenting So we're, you know, we're trying to do everything low demand. We're trying to take away those demands to lessen the boundaries. We're trying to use declarative language where we can. And I say we're trying because it, you know, it is, it's not only trial and error to see what works for him, but we're learning it ourselves as we go. And there are things still that I do and say, and I think, oh, I shouldn't have said that. That wasn't quite the right way to say it. Or how do I respond to this thing in the moment? And and it's really, really difficult to explain to other people because as you said they just think oh well they you know you just need to toughen up or you know you you need to show who's boss and it's just it's it's incredibly frustrating and 
I understand because it's really difficult to understand PDA. I've really found it quite overwhelming to learn. And there have been some different resources that I've come across now that I found explain it better. So I feel like I'm better equipped to not only understand it myself, but explain it to other people. Yeah, it is a lot. It's hard for people to understand because you don't unless you're in it. And if I think back to four or five years ago, my understanding of autism, I think like a lot of people, is Rain Man and the yes. Yes. And the that that's it <laughs> nothing else and that's how you know naive and uneducated I was at the time but I would have had absolutely no idea what PDA was and any understanding of that at all and also the normal strategies for autism and the type of approaches that are recommended for autism are a bit more mainstream in people's understanding I find so that they assume that your child is a slightly eccentric genius like you say rain man potentially and the challenges that they have are so different that even people who know about you know inverted commas standard autism is not applicable and you don't have the spoons to educate people yourself do you because you you yourself are going through such difficult times that it's that extra mental energy that you would need to summon which is called I think it's called emotional labor yeah yeah it's difficult and do you know what I do I find myself I might explain it to one friend on whatsapp and then I'll copy and paste it and send it to somebody else so I don't have to start all over again (laughs) I find myself doing that a lot lot it is really emotionally heavy trying to explain it all when you're already juggling the challenges of day-to-day life and just trying to keep everybody alive and safe so are you managing to get any educational activity done with Rudy at home or at this point is it literally just about surviving we've got an EOTAS package education otherwise in the school and that's because Rudy cannot access a school because not only is there not a school that can meet his needs but we can't actually get him there in the first place yes please do explain because I think it is a process that is again notoriously difficult for parents to go through so it could help anyone listening It was a big, big fight and it was lengthy because we had to completely change our tact at one point because when we got the draft through, it said mainstream typically, as it does for a lot of people. And we thought there's absolutely no way he can go to a mainstream school. At this point, though, we did think he might be able to go to a specialist school because we thought that would be fine and he would be able to go to school. It was just a matter of what kind of school. And we found a a local specialist school that we really liked. And they said no, because they didn't have the space, as often happens with EHCPs and specialist schools. Uh, So we appealed and we appealed for the contents. And the contents was because the the EHCP didn't accurately outline quite how difficult Rudy's sensory processing was and how bad his anxiety was, which is clear from the fact that the local authority was able to say he could cope in a mainstream school. So we knew that the contents needed some work. And we also wanted to appeal the setting because we didn't want a mainstream, we wanted a specialist. So it was an extended appeal. We're hoping to get some social services support as well, social care support. In the meantime... The schools were given some funding from the local authority, which allowed them to open up a new space for eight children. 
And when they told us that Rudy was getting one of eight spaces, we were just over the moon about it because they were absolutely amazing at that point um, and were supportive of him going there. So we did think, even though at the moment he can't, if we've got this brilliant support from this school that have offered him a place and they think they can help us with that gradual transition, amazing. So we got the school place sorted ahead of the hearing um, but we continued because we still needed the contents changed to accurately reflect Rudy's needs. And then on the day of the hearing, about an hour before the hearing was due to start, the school said, actually, we can't meet his needs anymore. No. Yeah, which was devastating. And they said that he was too cognitively able, which I hear a lot with specialist schools, if a child has, is autistic but is academically able. I hear that this is a really big struggle. And they also said that he was too verbal. And it was because at this point, we'd been paying for weekly private speech and language therapy because what was offered by the NHS just wasn't enough. So he'd been having weekly speech and language therapy. And it was essentially that he'd made too much progress since he was assessed. And he wouldn't be level with the other children in his class. That is absolutely shocking. Honestly, I don't know what to say. I know. It's it's like you're you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. Like, okay, should we not have done that so that he could have got the place? It just didn't make any sense at all. This is something that I have heard happen when applying for school places in the first place that children with PDAR told this, but I've never heard this happen, that they actually accept them and then come back and say, oh, no, sorry. No. So we basically then couldn't go ahead with the hearing because we were like, well, we don't, we've got to rethink our whole, our options because we don't know what we're going to do now. So we had to re-adjourn. So that was really frustrating because we'd put so much time and effort and stress and I was managing the whole appeal myself as well. I did have some support from advocate programs with things like the paperwork, you know, different templates and stuff, but I'd been managing it all myself. And at that point we thought, right, EOTIS was something we had heard of, but hadn't properly investigated. I thought if they're saying they can't meet his needs and all the other schools that they're consulting saying they can't meet his needs, we've got no choice but to go for EOTIS. So although I was furious and devastated at the time, I can look back now and with hindsight and say it was absolutely the best thing for him. The EOTAS package that we have has been amazing. So what happened was we had to start our appeal all over again for EOTAS because the reports that the local authority had done were just not accurate anyway. We had to have all new reports done, which of course is stressful and costly to support the need for Rudy to have an EOTAS package. Because the criteria for having one is that your evidence must show that a school setting is inappropriate. So we needed reports from an educational psychologist, which was one of the the key ones, but we did have other reports supporting it too, to say that any education setting is inappropriate and Rudy needs an EOTIS package that is delivered at home, i.e. tutor and therapist and everybody comes to our house. So we had a whole new appeal for that and a new hearing. And in the meantime, because Rudy reached the point where he was meant to start school in receptions, they started providing a tutor, but it wasn't until about six months later when we actually had the hearing that we were granted the EOTIS package. 
from the start of when we put our request in for an EHCP to the point where we got the final EHCP with the EOTIS package was two years. And in that time, Rudy had had one year of a tutor coming to our house and he'd done so well with that. And I think that helped with the evidence as well to show he was engaging really well with that and he really had a good relationship he'd built with the tutor. Our EOTIS package started September and we had up to 15 hours, but he managed hour and a half, two hours a day, I'd say, every morning. And then in the afternoons, we had a speech and language therapist one afternoon, occupational therapy, forest school. So I contacted forest schools because I knew Rudy loved being outside in our own garden where with, with various supports we put in place, he got to the point where he could go in the garden and he was regulated enough. So I did lots of research myself to find ones that could physically come to our home and do a one-on-one forest school session with him and play therapy. So it's a really good package. And we had an EOTIS coordinator as well, which I have not heard anybody else with an EOTIS package having a coordinator. It's usually down to the parents. Yeah, neither have I. That, that's amazing. That's a really good package. Yeah. We got an amazing package and I was really pleased. And then towards the end of last year, we started to see him going into burnout to the point where He stopped wanting to do the forest school at all. So very gradually, all of this amazing package that we had built up started to fall away because he wasn't able to engage in it anymore. And since Christmas, we started with the intention of trying to do some virtual sessions with people. So still having the same sessions, but through video call, through FaceTime. It worked with a couple of sessions, but nothing more from there. He stopped being able to engage in it at all. He just did not want to know. We then tried video, like them recording pre-recorded videos of themselves talking to him and us putting it on his iPad so that he could watch the videos in his own time. Stopped being able to do that at all. So he still has the EOTIS package in place and we're still having twice-termly reviews about how best to support him. And what I've asked for at the moment is to send some activities that they might have done with him here so that we could try strewing them, i.e. leave, you know, getting things out and leaving them dotted about the house for him to approach and play with it in his own time if he wants to. But he's not even been able to engage with that. So that's kind of where we are now. Anything is causing meltdowns. So I suppose we're kind of in a unofficial unschooling situation because we do have this stuff here ready for him when he can engage with it but he can't at the moment so we're not pushing it we're just we're allowing him to interact with us when he wants to he's spending a lot of time with screens which was something we didn't do before because we didn't know he was PDA we didn't know the approaches that we needed to best support him especially to come out of burnout but at the moment there isn't really any schooling as such that's happening. I'm really sorry to hear that. That sounds so, so difficult. And I think what you're doing is the right thing. I mean, you don't know what you don't know at the time. You were trying your best. And I think many, many parents go through this, trying to get their child to engage at a lower and lower level, eventually ending up at this point where you just remove all demands and just hope for the best, really. And I think that will happen. It will happen. And as you've probably seen, it can take months 
or potentially even up to a year or two to come out with burnout. My own son, Leo, he was in childcare for two years. That wasn't even school. That was a very play-based nursery setting in a preschool. And now we are more than a year into unschooling and removing all demands. And only now am I seeing that true personality coming out of the fight and flight. And it's still ups and downs, but it can take a while. And I'm, I'm pretty sure that you're doing the right thing. But what, what I would be interested to know is what your plan is, assuming that you continue with this unschooling approach, would the EOTAS package still be in place or would you then probably deregister him and go full on elective home education? What's the plan there? In all honesty, I don't really know. I would consider all options, but I feel like it just depends on, on how on how Rudy is as he comes out of burnout and what he's able to engage with because if he if he is able to accept the tutor and the therapists back into the home and they adapt their pro approaches because that's something too important to, important to say as well while they haven't been able to come in the home and I've still been in, in contact with them I've been updating them on everything that's going on and sending them training about PDA saying this is what we're doing to support Rudy now and if you're going to work with him this is how you need to approach your sessions with him too so they are all fully on board with that and, under and understanding what Rudy needs so if that works and they can do that then maybe that will work but who knows maybe maybe that's going to be it for Rudy because I, I strongly suspect that at the moment he can't do the videos with them because he's anticipating there are going to be demands because they've always placed demands on him previously. And as far as he's concerned, that's not changed because he has no awareness of any of this himself. So I sort of feel like I have no idea what the future holds for him because it just completely depends on how he is as he comes out of burnout. I suspect he's been in burnout for a lot longer than we knew. So it's almost like I don't, I'm not sure how well we know him if he's been masking so much and that sounds awful to say like I don't know my son well, clearly I do but I just don't know how he will be able to engage with anything elective home education is something that I never previously wanted to do but if it's all that he can do and that's best for him then we will absolutely do that and consider it but it's just taking it day by day at the moment that makes a lot of sense as a segue from that, you mentioned not wanting to do elective home education because it's not something that you'd ever planned to do. And obviously you mentioned you're working. So I'd love to hear about this parent support group that you formed. I suppose that's part of your work now, or do you still work as a copywriter as well? If you could tell me a little bit more about how you juggle all that with your parenting. Yeah, so I'm doing both at the moment. So I'm self-employed copywriter, editor and proofreader. Being self-employed is the only way I can juggle work and being here when Rudy needs me as well. I say here because I'm upstairs at our house and, you know, with him not being able to leave the home, he's here 24-7 as well. So it's really handy for me just being able to dash downstairs if he does need me. And I have more recently started a side project. So it's called Parent Carer Cheerleading Squad. And it's a community for parents of children with additional needs. And there are a couple of reasons why I started it up. So I know how little support there is out there through this whole journey. Most of everything we've been through is just what I figured out myself or learned from other parents. Because 
other parents go through this, realize there's not enough support out there and we support each other and we share advice and being able to chat to other parents going through the same thing is so validating. And it's just, it just feels like, as we were saying earlier, other people don't get it and it can be incredibly isolating. And I don't want other parents to feel like we did really alone. So I created this community so that we can support each other, not through just the challenges, but also to uplift each other and focus on the positives and the milestones that have been achieved as well. We're trying to look after ourselves through these difficult day-to-day challenges. And at the moment, I'm juggling the two things. My main income at the moment is still through the copywriting and editing as I'm building up this this separate community. But it's something I do want to focus on more because I'm just really passionate about helping other parents. Could you tell us a little bit more about what format it runs in, in case anyone's interested, and whether it's available in the UK only or is it open to parents from the rest of the world as well? So it's a Facebook group. It's open to everybody, any parents, any parent carers of children with additional needs are more than welcome to join. I'm just starting to do some stuff on my Instagram as well. So I I was using that for my copywriting business, but I've kind of switched because I realised I actually prefer talking about the things that are happening with my son and the SEND system and supporting other parents there. So it's the Facebook community and my Instagram, but everybody is more than welcome to join. That sounds really good. I'll put a link into the show notes to a- Amy's website so you can check this out if you're interested in joining. Okay. And also, Amy, as you mentioned, you're a copywriter. So I did look you up a little bit and I can tell that you have a lot of experience with working with charities in particular. Yeah. So I'm very curious, is there anything that you see that charities or other organisations do well or not so well in the way that they talk about autism and neurodivergence? And do you think there is some way that different copy could change the narrative in a meaningful way? It's interesting because I'm definitely seeing more employers talking about it in the sense of they're talking about ways that they can and will and now are supporting neurodivergent colleagues And I'm definitely seeing things about making content more inclusive. So, for example, using formatting that's easier for many neurodivergent people to read and sort of screen readers to read and things like that. But I don't know if that's because I'm looking out for it. I've got that lens on. Other than that, I don't really have firsthand experience of working with charities or organisations that have talked about it themselves. But absolutely, there's definitely a gap there where... There are so many better ways that neurodivergent people can be supported. And I do think it's a good thing that there's there's becoming more awareness of it. People are much more aware of it now, but there's definitely still a lot of work that could be done to educate people on the differences and what it means to better support autistic ADHD people. I agree. And I think that language and the way we talk about things is so important in changing that whole narrative around neurodivergence. So for example, even the way we say has autism or is autistic, I wonder which one you prefer because I've had some interesting conversations (laughs) lately with people who actually prefer has autism when they talk about themselves. So I'm wondering what you think about interesting. That's really interesting. I think earlier in the conversation, I started to say about Rudy with autism and then no autistic. So I'm still, I'm still teaching myself. 
I try to say autistic because my partner is autistic. He realised this through Rudy's diagnosis. And because he prefers that, that's the language that I use. If somebody tells me they prefer with autism, that's actually absolutely fine. And I would use those words to describe them if that's what they preferred. But otherwise, my default tends to be autistic. What's yours? Yeah, I'm autistic too. But as you say, before I educated myself a little bit more on what the community prefers, I would have definitely said on the spectrum, potentially, or has autism and a lot of people still do I wonder if that's because they don't even realize that it's a conversation that there is one or the other and that people do prefer one or the other but it's absolutely all these conversations are exactly the conversations we need to be having to better educate ourselves and each other indeed can I ask do you consider yourself neurodivergent I do yes funnily enough have done some of the online tools to see what they say about you know are you autistic are you ADHD and I have no idea how trustworthy they are at all and some of them have said maybe for autistic I don't think I am myself the only thing I would say is I've definitely realized that I'm highly sensitive and I'm not saying that's under the neurodivergent umbrella at all because I absolutely do not think it is But there are, I've seen some crossover just with some of the sensitivities around things that I do think are there, but I I don't think I'm neurodivergent. I consider myself neurotypical. Okay, that's interesting. Thank you so much, Amy, for coming on the podcast. I've really enjoyed talking to you and thank you for your honesty and sharing your struggles as well. The last thing that I wanted to ask before I let you go is... In an ideal world, what would education look like for a PDA, you think? And it could be Rudy or it could be applicable to the wider PDA community. But what do you think is the best approach? That's really interesting. I feel like in an ideal world, I would love for Rudy to be able to attend a setting that gave him social opportunities that he's missing out on now, which I know can happen obviously with unschooling and electively home educating as well. But I suppose the other benefit of being a setting is that it's also allowing him to access another person's safe nervous system and build bonds and have relationships with other people, but both children and adults, because at the moment he only sees me and his dad no children no other adults and he's not able to so I would love if he was able to feel safe and feel happy and be supported and have those other relationships with other people but I don't really know how it would work in practice maybe one day maybe we'll get there who knows (laughs) all right thank you so much Amy and just a reminder that I will put Amy's links in the show notes so please do check those out if you'd like to connect with her she is on Instagram and also her support group on Facebook thank you again Amy and all the best thank you thank you so much for listening to this episode of unschooling with PDA if you found this content valuable or interesting please do rate the show on the podcast platform of your choice if it allows you to do so. This will help the podcast reach other parents who might be interested. And don't forget to visit at unschoolingwithpda on Instagram to keep up to date with later episodes and new releases.